Making space images more accessible through sonification. This week on Planetary Radio. I'm Sarah Al-Ahmed of the Planetary Society, with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Space is for everyone, and we all deserve to experience space images. Our guest this week, Kim Arkand, and her colleagues at Chandra Labs have just released an album of sonified data from NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory. This collection of audio tracks called Universal Harmonies hopes to make space more accessible to people with low or no vision. The result is a beautiful and thought-provoking album of ambient and sometimes spooky audio. And we'll close out our show with the night sky and a chance to win a special LP version of Universal Harmonies in this week's Space Trivia Contest. As many of you know, I was out sick last week as I recovered from COVID, but I'm back. I'd like to give a special thanks to Matt Kaplan, the creator and former host of Planetary Radio, who filled in for me while I was away. And thank you so much for all the wonderful Get Well messages you sent me. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. Now it's time for some space news. Solar sailing is on the rise. After the success of the Planetary Society's LightSail 2 mission, solar sailing is growing in popularity as a method of propelling spacecraft. The latest issue of the Planetary Report, our quarterly magazine, explores new and upcoming missions like NASA's Advanced Composite Solar Sail System, or ACS-3, and how they'll use sunlight to push the boundaries of space exploration. A little bit of sad news. Japan's new H-3 rocket was unfortunately destroyed during its inaugural flight on March 7th. Though the rocket's first stage appeared to be performing well, the second stage failed to ignite. JAXA made the difficult decision to send a destruct command to the rocket at 10.52 local time, citing that there was no possible way of achieving the mission. Space is hard, and we wish the H-3 teams luck in their future attempts. Remember back in September 2022 when the DART spacecraft purposefully crashed into the asteroid Dimorphos? It changed the history of planetary defense. The footage was amazing. We practically punched an asteroid in the face for the dinosaurs, and we should all be proud. Hubble, the Italian space agency's Lichia Cube, and telescopes worldwide spotted the distant space debris after the impact. It was awesome! Now, a new video of Hubble images released by the European Space Agency shows dust and rock from the collision spilling out into ghostly trails around the asteroid. The debris appears to form a comet-like tail, which is influenced by the asteroid's gravity. You can learn about these stories and more in the March 10th edition of The Downlink, our weekly newsletter. Read it or subscribe to have it sent to your inbox for free every Friday at planetary.org downlink. Here at the Planetary Society, we believe that space is for everyone. No matter where you come from, your level of understanding, lifestyle, or abilities, we all deserve to share in the passion, beauty, and joy of space science and exploration. Our guest this week, Dr. Kim Arkand, and her colleagues at the Boston Area Chandra Labs are working to find new ways to make space images more accessible to people with low or no vision. Their new album, Universal Harmonies, is a collection of sonifications of deep space objects observed by NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory. This space telescope observes some of the most extreme objects in the universe. Black holes, exploding stars, and clusters of galaxies, to name a few. Sonification is the process of representing data or information as sound. 
This technique allows people to convert data that's usually presented visually into an auditory form. Sonification is used not only to make data more accessible, but to explore and understand complex data sets. It provides a different way for us to explore the wonders of the cosmos. Kim Arkand is a visualization scientist and emerging tech lead for NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory, headquartered at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory in Cambridge, Massachusetts, USA. With the help of her colleagues, NASA, Harvard, the Smithsonian, the Canadian-based group called System Sounds, and their producers at Sua Sounds, their new album Universal Harmonies was released on March 10th. Hi, Kim. Welcome to Planetary Radio. Thanks, Sarah. It's really great to be here. Congratulations on the release of Universal Harmonies. It just came out last Friday, so this is a perfect moment to talk to you about this. Yeah, I'm super excited for sonifications to have more of a moment, if you will, out there in the world. Absolutely. This project has been years in the making. How would you describe this album? The project of sonification in general has, I feel like, been kind of a long time coming. For me, it was a slow journey to get here. I've been working for NASA's Chandrax Observatory for almost 25 years and spent the first few years of my career really just working on images and started moving into like 3D modeling and 3D printing to be able to make it more inclusive and more accessible. But we were still really missing an important piece of that accessibility and also like that translation. And so when I started working with my colleagues at System Sounds to create two-dimensional data sonifications, which is just the process of taking the image and turning to sound, I really felt like that was a moment where we had finally sort of filled that last gap that we had. So it has been a journey, but it's been a really fabulous one. I found the sonifications in this album to be really kind of calming and ambient, you know, something that might be good to listen to while you're meditating or working, which gave me a really good laugh because then I read articles about it was specifically the sonification of the Perseus cluster. And they described it as this, you know, cosmic horror and this <laughs> terrifying howling of outer space. And I guess that really depends on, you know, what object you're listening to. <laughs> it does. Yeah, we've, we've heard lots of different feedback about these sounds because some of them are, like you said, quite relaxing and calming. And some of them are a little bit more peppy and joyful. And some are perhaps a little eerie and, and strange sounding. And we actually did a survey, a sonification study, if you will, on these pieces about a year and a half ago. And that was pretty much the feedback we got. It was very much across the spectrum of this made me feel calm. This made me feel relaxed. This made me feel interested. This made me feel excited, right? All of those emotions. And I think that really speaks to the power of sound and music in general. It embeds itself in your imagination and your, in your mind in a different way. And I think that's an exciting thing for astronomy to be a part of. How did you originally get interested in sonification and, and how did that lead to the creation of this album? There's like a few different steps that I had to take. First, um, it was the introduction to a very dear friend of mine, Dr. Wanda Diaz. Um, she's an astronomer and computer scientist. She went blind when she was a teenager. And she's talked about how she would be in classes and professors would just be writing math equations on a board. And she felt like she could not be a scientist in that way. And so her PhD thesis was essentially on the fact that scientists, that people can learn to become better listeners of scientific data. And that's always been an inspiration point for me. We started working with my students in a lab before COVID. 
on how to take virtual reality and attach data sonification to it in that sort of geospatially aware way. And we were working on that and then COVID hit and it just kind of, you know, everybody went home and things were just changing. And that's when I, I contacted my colleagues, Matt and Andrew from System Sound, because I had met them at a conference a few years prior. They were doing interesting work on turning two-dimensional images into sound. And I thought, well, maybe that's where we could go right now, right? It's a pandemic. Things need to be sort of simplified. Let's see how we can do this. And that's that's where we started. And I had a list of like my favorites, my best hits, if you will, the greatest hits that I was hoping would really translate well from, you know, the Chandra X-ray image into like a Chandra X-ray sound and all the other NASA data involved as well. And we've just been going through that list and really trying to create something new that adds value, hopefully for people in an interesting way. And Chandra is a unique case because it's an X-ray telescope. So necessarily, humans cannot see that part of the spectrum. And we have to make changes to how we share that data in order to make it accessible to anyone at all. So this is a perfect segue between taking the images and finding a way to interpret it and share it with more people, make it accessible to more human senses. Exactly. I, I love that talking point in general. And it's something that I like to talk about a lot because this is x-ray data that no human eyes can ever naturally see. And that process of translation is important, right? You have to take something that's essentially numerical and translate into the representation of the object in a kind of light that humans can't detect, in this case, x-ray light, but also even with um, infrared light from the James Webb Space Telescope or different kinds of light from the Hubble Space Telescope, for example. And that process of translation, it's like taking something and translating it from English into, say, Mandarin. You do have to have choices that you're making as the translator. You're sticking to the story, you're being authentic, you're being truthful, but not every word is going to be exactly the same in the two different languages, right? So that process of translation, I think, is really important to consider, not just for the image, but also for the sounds as well. It's just moving something from one form into another, but sticking to that scientific truth. And how do you sonify these images? Because I imagine that there are many different methods to do so. You know, what angle do you take across the image? What tone do you associate with certain colors and brightnesses? How does that work? Yeah, so there are a number of different ways to do this, and different researchers are applying different methods for their own needs, right? Um, I'm actually working on a project with my students, again, where we're taking a sort of auto approach where you upload an image and it just does a very basic sweep across the image from left to right. But you do have a sort of independent movement to be able to assign, you know, trace the pixels if you were um, with your location, with your mouse, with your finger, whatever. And that will just create some very simple sounds based on the types of stuff in that image. But this project is a sonification project that I've been working on for the past few years with my colleagues. It's more of a bespoke process. We're doing a mathematical mapping, and that mathematical mapping is done using Python, and then it's brought into essentially a sound engineering platform where you're then tweaking the sounds based on that scientific story. But what's really important is your input. What is the image that you're starting with? What is the scientific information that you're starting with? That drives every part of this translation. And so if it's a long sort of wide image, we're going to do a pan typically from left to right. If it's a tall, skinny image, we're going to pan from either top to bottom or bottom up, depending on the data. If it's a circular shaped object, we're going to go from the middle out, right? So there are all of these different techniques that we've been applying to make sure that the science of that 
object is something that will really make sense. And also working with our partners who are blind or low vision to make sure it makes step along the way, right? To make sure all of that sciencey goodness, if you will, is really being communicated and that there's value being added in that meaning-making process. Most people I've encountered think of sonifications as kind of a fun niche thing, maybe something that's used for accessibility and entertainment. But each new way of expressing data presents an opportunity to catch things you might not have noticed before. So how can we use sonification for scientific purposes? Yeah, 100%. And I definitely totally understand the skeptics, by the way. This is not going to be for everybody. But the point of this isn't actually for it to be for everybody, right? We went into this project with a very specific mission of continuing to work with our colleagues and our community members who are blind or low vision. And so at the end of the day, that is really a key requirement of this project. But secondary to that, as we talked about earlier, music and sound your human senses are tuned to those in different ways than they're tuned to sight if you happen to have both of those senses. And there's a power, I think, in leveraging whatever senses you have available, whether it's touch, whether it's sight, whether it's sound. I might stop at taste or smell. Um, but for <laughs> me, right, having like multiple senses, these multiple modalities can be really important. I've found it myself, like even with some of these objects that I have made the images for. I have stared at this data for years and years and years, and I know these pixels inside and out. And the first time I'll hear a complete sonification, I'll find something new. The Galactic Center is a great example of this. It has different kinds of light. It's got infrared light, it's got uh, like a near-infrared optical light, and then it's got the X-ray light. And all three different kinds of light are sort of working together to show us a glimpse of the inner 400 light years of our Milky Way's core. And when you look at that image, it's beautiful, but it's very dense, it's very rich, there's a lot of activity. This is a very hustle-bustle kind of region of space. When you listen to the sounds, your ears can process things slightly differently, right? And you can hear these moments where one or two of the different types of light, one or two of those different sounds are just harmonizing beautifully. And then in the next moment, you'll hear a solo. And I'll have to look at that image that I know, like the back of my hand, and be like, I've never noticed that before. So there is a whole area of research where this is being used for scientific study, and they are actively working not only to understand how it can help the scientists, but also what kinds of different data produce different results that we can learn in different ways. It's all about this idea of delivering data differently, as a colleague of mine has said, and what the power in that might be. I, I think it's young days still, but it's, to me, a very exciting field. Do you have any favorite tracks on this album? Yes, definitely. Oh, I have a couple favorites. And actually, two of them I've already mentioned. Um, Perseus, for sure. That one just blew me away. And the Galactic Center was one of our first ones. And it's a very, I'm a former band and choir geek. So the Galactic Center just, I don't know, it just gives me chills still. Another favorite of mine is the M51 galaxy. It's an interacting galaxy, the Whirlpool galaxy. It's this beautiful spiral structure. And we've got four different kinds of lights all layered together. Optical, X-ray, ultraviolet, and infrared. Each layer is played individually and then together. And it's with a choral sound. It 
reminds me a little bit of um, Eric Whitaker's music. I don't know if anyone's a fan here on the radio. Love Eric um, but Whitaker. It's, <laughs> it's right, beautiful choral moments, and we can't quite compared to that. But it has these moments of these, you can hear these little diva moments of solos in that upper, upper, ultra high soprano sound, because these are synthesized choral sounds. And you got these beautiful, rich bass notes coming in from the infrared. And it's just, when you hear it all together, it's whoa. And when you hear all of the individual components, you can pick up different facets of what that sound is telling you. You can hear the stronger spiral structure in the optical. And then once you get to the x-ray, you're getting more of those like staccato bits, right? Those little diva moments from that ultra high soprano because you're picking up things like x-ray binaries, uh, two stars kind of like dancing together, uh, exploded stars, smaller black holes, that kind of stuff. And you can hear that in the data. And I think that's really exciting. So that one is definitely a favorite. And the other favorite, if I could pick one more, is the Chandra Deepfield South. It's an image that like a scientist can love, but it's hard to communicate the excitement of that image when the image itself looks like, you know, you've taken a black canvas and splattered some colored paint on it. The story of it, that, you know, we pointed Chandra at a patch of the sky for an awfully long time. It's the deepest X-ray image we've ever gotten. And Chandra found thousands of black holes just hanging out there in the universe, you know, way, way back in the early days of the universe. When you hear the music, it kind of reminds me of Imogen Heap. I don't know if, if you like her music. Yes. She's an artist from the UK. And it's got that sort of lovely, melodic I don't know, almost like a blurriness to it. And the sound is based on the energy levels of each of the black holes that were detected or the galaxies that have supermassive black holes at their cores um, that were detected in that image. And you can just hear, it's just like a choir of black holes all hanging out together in the universe. And I think it's quite lovely. That's beautiful. I loved that deep field. Listening to it was just such a wonderful experience. I think for me, though, just because of the timing of it, the, the Supernova 1987A <gasps> oh, track, yes. I really loved it because I was born just a few months after that happened. So oh, it's that's cool. <laughs> one of my yeah. favorite space moments. <laughs> Yeah, that's cool. And and I like that piece, too, because, well, I love that supernova. I'm very partial to supernova remnants, for sure. But we actually used a bit of sound from our colleague, Christine Malik. She is an amateur astronomer. She's a colleague that works with us. She's blind. She's been blind since birth, and she's a musician as well. And we used, like, some of the sound from her music as the piece going around Supernova 1987A. So that one was very special as well. But I guess I feel like they're all special, clearly, at the rate I'm going. Can't pick a favorite child, I guess. Kim, you've led such a distinguished career, and I want to thank you for everything you've done to make space for everyone. It makes me so happy, and there are so many more people that are going to be able to experience this data because of your work and your colleagues' work. So thank you. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. It's, it's, this is not just me, though. This is hundreds of colleagues around the world that all sort of lend their talents, their data, their skills. And yeah, I couldn't do it without any of them. So it's a group effort always. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Sarah. I loved that conversation with Kim Arkant. 
The intersection of music and science is always beautiful, but when it provides us new ways to share and explore space together, it's even better. You can find the extended version of my interview with Dr. Kim Arkand, a visualization scientist and emerging tech lead for NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory, in the online and podcast version of this show at planetary.org slash radio or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You'll also be treated to two special bonus segments. The Planetary Society's new member community app has finally launched, and we have an update on the Boeing Starliner. We'll be right back for What's Up after a short break. Ready to level up your space game? Hi, I'm Amber, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society, and we are launching our brand new digital member community. This is a place that's built exclusively for Planetary Society members. Here you can connect with fellow members from around the world, join live events you won't get anywhere else, and delve deeper into the wonders of our cosmos and the missions that explore them. It's all about putting the society in the Planetary Society. I'll see you on the digital frontier. Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. Boldly go to build our future. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. And now it's time for What's Up with Bruce Betts, the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society. Hey, Bruce, I'm back from outer space. And by outer space, I mean back from recovering from COVID. <laughs> oh, sounds awful. And yeah, no, I guess that was worse than leaving me with Matt. But um, <laughs> anyway, I'm so sorry that you went through that and are still, I guess, recovering. So I'm also very glad to be seeing you two-dimensionally. You know what we should talk about? Uh, the sky. Um, sure. Still there. Saw him last night. Super bright Venus. Below it, uh, bright Jupiter dropping, dropping, dropping as the days pass. It'll be disappearing soon. Catch it while it's hot or something. Anyway, still looking stunning. Mars still pretty high overhead, hanging out in the general region of a bunch of bright stuff, including Orion. Maybe a little premature, but if you're if you're really into Saturn or the horizon just before dawn, visible very low in the east before dawn, Saturn's starting to come up. But it'll just be getting higher and higher, and eventually we'll reach a point in the sky in a few months where I'll be able to see it without waking up in the middle of the night. On to this week in space history. 1958, the U.S. launches Vanguard 1, which was one of the early successful spacecraft. Next successful one after Explorer 1, but it holds the record for being the longest object in orbit around the Earth or in space that was sent by humans. It's uh, still up there from 1958. Another object to mention, uh, object? Sure, Mercury. 2011, Messenger became the first spacecraft ever to go into orbit around Mercury in this week in space history. I love those pictures. So few times have we had an opportunity to get a good glimpse of Mercury. On to Random Space Fact. Ooh, a nice quiet one. That was calming. <laughs> I didn't want to upset you, so. <laughs> the constellation Crux, containing the asterism, the Southern Cross, visible to 
everyone hanging out in the Southern Hemisphere and quite recognizable, interestingly was visible to like the ancient Greeks a few hundred years BC because that was before it dropped below the horizon and out of the view of anyone that now it's around plus 20 degrees latitude that you have to be below that to have a chance to see it. So why? Why did this happen? It was not magic. It was the very weird Earth's precession. So like a top is spinning and its axis traces out a circle as it loops around. Amazingly, Earth does that on a 26,000-year cycle, changing our North Pole angle, but also affecting things like what constellations can be seen from where. So anyway, there's just a little bit of southern sky for all the times I don't properly treat you well. Uh, you can enjoy the Southern Cross this evening for me and for Sarah. Let's go to the trivia. We got a couple to catch up on because someone wasn't here last week. So uh, we're going to do two answers to contests. We'll start with the oldest question, which was, how many missions to Mars were tried but failed for any reason before Mariner 4 was the first successful mission at Mars? How'd we do, Sarah? We did well. And, and it's actually really funny. So this question and the question after it from last week, both of our winners are from the UK, which seems cosmically funny to me, considering that I caught COVID at a Doctor Who convention. <laughs> but the winner for this question was Paul Mundy. And the answer is that there were six failed missions that attempted to get to Mars before Mariner 4 succeeded, five of which were from the USSR and one from the United States. So, Paul, you're going to be winning a good night Oppie 12-ounce thermal mug. Yay! What was our second question? From a robotic sample return mission, so not crude, what was the largest mass of samples returned by a single mission? How about that one? Yeah, our winner on this one is Stefan Whitehead, also from the UK. And the answer is it's the Chinese National Space Administration's Chang'e 5 mission, which went to the moon in 2020 and returned 1,731 grams of material to Earth. That's a little under four pounds. Stefan, you're winning a TPS beanie, so we'll send you a nice beanie to keep you warm. You got any more comments for me? Or uh... Oh, yeah, I'd like to read a couple uh, messages from listeners because this one was funny. Mark Dunning from Ormond, Florida wrote to say, still getting used to nice Bruce. I guess it's just going to take time. Your niceness to me is uh, weirding people out, Bruce. Yeah, I was afraid of that. I didn't know. I've, I've been trying to check what the etiquette is for how long until I can get more abusive. But you played the COVID card. And so now I, I just don't have the heart. Sorry, everyone. Sooner or later, it'll happen. And I loved this message, too, from Eric O'Day from Winchester, Massachusetts, who wanted to thank me because in my interview with Minakshi Wadwa on the Mars sample return mission, I said that they should put a chomper thing on the little helicopters going to Mars and that it made his week and that NASA should officially use chomper thing as the nomenclature for that. Of course, the helicopters will not have a chomper thing. So, well, I mean, they weren't going to, but right now, now. <laughs> anyway, uh, you, you got more? Should I go on? Let's go on. All right. We got a, uh, something a little different. Name all the countries whose national flag has some representation of the Southern Cross asterism that is part of the Crux constellation. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. And you have until Wednesday, March 22nd, 2023 at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer. 
And if you win, we have a really special prize. As you heard earlier when I was doing the interview with Kim Arcand, they have these beautiful vinyl LP versions of their new album, Universal Harmonies. So if you win this, we will send you one of those vinyl records. Wow. That sounds pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody, go out there, look at the night sky, and think of the terror that is Sarah. Thank you, and good night. We've reached the end of this week's episode of Planetary Radio. We'll be back next week with Lindy Elkins-Tanton, the principal investigator for the upcoming Psyche mission to investigate a metallic asteroid. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our diverse and appreciated members. Mark Hilverta and Ray Pauletta are our associate producers. Andrew Lucas is our audio editor. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. And until next week, Ad Astra. (laughs) 